0: Welcome to Sustainability as a Mindset, a 74-podcast series exploring new directions to perceive our world through a sustainability mindset within a multidisciplinary framework. My name is Tina Celik, and I will be talking to leading names from various disciplines to imagine how we think, act, and work together for a sustainable future ahead. Hello, welcome to Sustainability as a Mindset, and Istanbul 74 podcast series. Today, I have a guest who has a very special place in my own professional life. Most of you might know that I've been working in sustainable fashion area as a consultant and lecturer for over four years. And from the beginning, my biggest inspiration and motivation was dear Ursula de Castro. So it is a real honor for me to be hosting her today for my podcast. Ursula de Castro is an internationally recognized opinion leader in sustainable fashion. Her career started as a designer with the pioneering upcycling label from somewhere, which she launched in 1997 until 2014. Her designer collaborations include collections for many leading fashion brands. In 2006, she co-founded the British Fashion Council initiative, Aesthetica at London Fashion Week, which she curated until 2014. And in 2013, with Kerry Summers, she founded Fashion Revolution, a global campaign and movement with participation in over 100 countries around the globe. Ursula is a regular keynote speaker and mentor Associate Lecturer at UAL as well as Central San Martins Visiting Fellow. So welcome Ursula and thank you very much for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much for inviting me and I hadn't realized that you'd been following my work for a while so I'm super super flattered. Thank you for letting me know.
0: Oh of course I was and I am. <laughs> <laughs> so Ursula besides being my own role model you are considered to be a pioneer when it comes to sustainable fashion that's for sure so can you share your career paths because we all would love to know in detail and uh, what I actually prefer to call it your heroic journey <laughs> can can you tell us a bit please
1: well um, I have to be really honest and I am a creative soul And everything really starts from an instinct or from something that I want to make or from a creative perspective. So I didn't set out to become um, a sustainability leader. I set out to mend some broken jumpers. And that's how my career started. And I worked on, I used to buy secondhand jumpers full of holes and crochet around those holes And so to begin with, really, it was for my own pleasure. And then I started showing them and people started buying them. In a very short space of time, I was selling in some of the best and trendiest boutiques in the world. And I was being worn by, well, not I, but my clothes were being worn by, you know, celebrities the world over. So that was my start. And it wasn't until I started progressing to really understand the industry and quantity and delivering and you know where I was sourcing from that I realized that I was experiencing and witnessing a shift that was historical um, and that was the shift to waste you know in the UK we call ready to wear and I call it ready to waste like in France it's mm. prêt à porter I call it prêt à jeter And the truth is, that's what I saw. You know, I saw a beautiful manufacturing industry being destroyed by the advent of cheap fashion and fast luxury. I saw an incredible um, uh, shift towards um, a different type of manufacturing. And that's what turned me. So I turned along the way. Um, I have to say quite soon along the way. And so that was my experience. And then of course, um, it became the realization that my creativity had led me somewhere, but it was never going to be enough. So I had to look for others that shared that starting point within that design practice and creativity. And that was really very much estetica that my my partner and I founded in, in 2006 together with Anna Orsini from the British Fashion Council. And then that led to me understanding what was happening globally in terms of sustainability and design, and again, finding myself digging deeper and deeper. And, and of course, then fashion um, revolution started immediately after the, the Rana Plaza disaster. And that obviously led to uh, you know becoming even more involved on a global scale with so many teams, including a brilliant team in Turkey that I will probably mentioned several other times in this interview because I hope that you will all discover them and follow them but um, as I said it was gradual it was determined by my own experience by my own gut feelings and it was a journey because it started such a long time ago that it was very lonely to begin with it's only really the last few years then I see it more as a global movement before it was just a a uh, collection of, of people very much sharing the same impetus and collaborating to make changes.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, definitely. It's only a few years that it is now uh, being, um, let's say, more uh, get, getting awareness. Yeah. Uh, but it is also so interesting, uh, Ursula, that back in the year 1997, uh, you have initiated the, the brand from somewhere. Which was, I think we, that should be the first fashion brand to address the issues of waste and recyclability in, in such a way. So I, that's why I want to ask your definition of waste. Uh, how do you define waste and where do you think is the real solution to, to tackling the waste issue?
1: Well, many times the real solution comes in changing our language because that's the precursor to changing our attitude. So if we stopped calling it waste because it really, really isn't, um, then we could see it as a resource, which is what it always has been for me. Uh, There is a really clear distinction between what is waste and what is wasted. So waste is hazardous. Waste is something that really cannot be recuperated. Waste is something which ought to be transformed into or downcycled into something else. But waste, as we see it in the fashion industry, is far from that. I mean, you know, waste in fashion is just as beautiful as, as, you know, the minute it is considered waste and just as usable. So the 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 difference is huge and uh, the reality is that the problem is that it's convenient to call it waste rather than calling it an obsolescence or something discarded or something not wanted because it's only wasted simply because there is no time to reconsider it. So it's put in the bin before it's allowed a second chance. And this is depleting our environment of precious resources, because obviously the more we discard, the more we have to create something from scratch and something new. And it's also stopping new job descriptions coming into the market, because if people did not consider waste waste, but they looked at it as a resource, for sure they would be employing people to reuse it. And in that sense, these are exactly the kind of jobs that we need, particularly now at a moment of a pandemic, at a moment of change, at a moment in which we know that we are harming our environment. So my only definition is waste as we know it now is definitely a resource.
0: Mm -hmm. And here comes uh, to my mind uh, the importance of the design part of the whole uh, chain, value chain in fashion industry. So I think that is the key, that sustainable design and thinking new ways uh, is the key to create the real positive impact. And um, how do you uh, yourself practice uh, and perform sustainability by design point of view?
1: Well, I don't anymore. Um, in, but I do teach and, and I mentor an awful lot of young designers, in fact, very proudly because some of the designers I mentor are now way more successful than I ever was mm-hmm. um, and definitely carrying the, the, the torch forth. But, uh, you know, the truth is that there is, um, there is a massive lack of design discipline at fashion school that takes into consideration these issues. And again, <laughs> both from a creative and a practical point of view. If fashion students in year one were taught to upcycle and not to create any waste themselves, that already would be a step in the right direction because it would create the right mindset. But the truth is that eco-design is a technique that needs to be taught and it involves elements such as design for disassembly so that you know that you're designing something which is easy to take apart when it gets to you know its second life where it's easy to remove the zip easy to remove the buttons easy to use the right materials that can be recycled together or separated at source. Um, Eco design should take into consideration Um, you know obviously to be a zero waste pattern cutting as possible so it it is a it is a technique just as upcycling is a technique you know then it is the flair of the designer that makes it into the interpretation of the technique but these are techniques and these are techniques that are rigorously not being taught or not being taught enough or not being taught well enough I mean I know some incredible practitioners um, from uh, you know Tim Morrison and to Holly McQuillan who've written books on zero waste pattern cutting to you know the team at Redress in Hong Kong who do amazing resources for for teachers and educators and i mean there's just not enough of it being taught again uh, what we need to understand is that the teaching of fashion is still very much around the creativity of the designer student, but we're still preparing them to go into industry. Right now, we're preparing them to go into an industry that doesn't really exist. You know, what they're, what they're learning is, is not compatible to what they will discover. They will discover exploitation of people, exploitation of resources, uh, you know, waste, all, all, of the, all that we've discussed before. And they really don't have the capacity to deal with it once they enter the big designer houses which is why most designers actually opt to start their own label their tiny label identifying more with being an artisan but the importance of eco design is not just for students is that it is a technique that should be incorporated precisely by those gigantic fashion brands that are creating the massive problem because again if garment workers in bangladesh myanmar bangalore and india if they were taught designed to disassemble so if there was the way for them to assemble but also learn how to disassemble clothing if there were um, you know making as well as unmaking lines in all of the most advanced um, factories um, as i said before we would be creating new jobs and we would be cleaning up as we go along but of course this makes things slower it's more innovation to be included and brands are not um, taking it seriously in the slightest which is why we need to start from scratch and start from the students who will eventually become the ceos of these companies and hopefully they will demand um, a much better and much more efficient because this is about efficiency you know, ultimately, you know, you the people will have to understand that it will make economic efficiency to reuse every scrap along the way.
0: Yes, so true. Um, and I've been thinking a lot lately about the conflict between sustainability and the growth obsession of the current system, and how we can provide a real solution unless we change the core of the problem. This is also valid for the fashion industry's newcomers. No doubt that they are more aware and dedicated to fix the broken system. However, they find themselves in the middle of the complex sourcing systems and the pressure of consumption-driven design. So what do you think about this growth obsession of fashion industry?
1: Well, I mean, you know, I am really not an economist Um, but I am somebody that's interested in these subjects and I'm certainly someone that reads a lot and the reality is that you know historically we've seen you know, the rise and fall of the monarchies, the rise and fall of the great ideologies. Capitalism is not working for the planet and therefore it needs to change. It needs to mature. And growth at this point is, we shouldn't really call it growth because right now we're not looking at growth. We're looking at excess. And this is, you know, fundamentally wrong for the state of this planet and for its people because this excess is not equally uh, somehow um, distributed. And it is not providing either prosperity nor abundance. It's providing the opposite of that. It's provided, providing extreme richness for very, very few people and abject poverty for the majority. So, you know, if we want to look at it from a, um, you know, moral point of view, humanity needs a moral upgrade, particularly the humanity that is in power. And the fashion industry is possibly where this is the most visible, where this excess is, you know, so blatant for all to see that it is impossible to deny its existence at this point in time. The thing is that when people say that growth provides employment and jobs, They nevertheless forget one word and that's the word good that needs to go before employment and before jobs we are providing exploitative work we are providing undignified work in the majority of cases very few are those companies that pay a living wage to their supply chain workers very very few and in the fashion industry you know really few and far between And Mm -hmm. it is an oligopoly of brands that basically own the entire market. So there is no way on this planet, if you have a soul, if you have any sense of justice, that you can deem this system just for people and planet. And the thing is that growth doesn't need to negate abundance and prosperity. It's just a question of balance. So if we were to train uh, supply chain workers in particular garment workers female garment workers to develop a skill which means that they aren't paid by the piece they make but they are paid by the hour they work they are paid dignifiedly so that they can support their family and they don't have to worry about medical expenses or the health and education of their children we would be um, creating clothes that are better made there would be few of them and those jobs would be um, dignified and providing as I said before abundance and prosperity for the people who make our clothes so that's where we need to get to it, it's just really quite simple um, I wrote a piece on the on CNN recently and I said so I'm quoting myself that I said You know, the one innovation that we have not tried is to treat each other as equals. So long as there are multi-trillionaires making money out of people earning 29 pence per hour, because that's what (laughs) some of the wages have been, you know, uh, exposed in the UK, in Leicester a few months ago. Um, Mm -hmm. There cannot be justice nor peace on this planet. And, you know, COVID has shown us the profound inequalities that we are calling our society. And it's also shown us that, you know, these profound inequalities are leading to an environmental catastrophe that eventually will kill us all. Because, you know, it is us having taken land away from nature that is creating these viruses and these lack of hygienic situation, which are, you know, damaging um, you know, the the, the, the the rhythm of life in, in, in all. And so until we find this balance, um, we, we're not going to grow, we're not going to be evolving any longer. So this is why it's so urgent. And this is why it is the entire system that needs to be redressed. But it's also unfortunately why I'm probably the least convincing person because I am a fashion designer. I am a creative and I speak from my heart and my gut. Um, So um, we go back to the students. We go back to the importance of um, these stories being told not just to fashion design students, but to students of business, to students of philosophy students of economics um, this is why it's so important that a new fashion system um, like a new fashion team um, checks in with marine biologists checks in with environmentalists checks in with the chemists of this world because mm-hmm. the only way that we're going to make this function is if we take into consideration every step of the supply chain and every step of the supply chain responds to different um you know topics and and, and solutions
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So true, and yeah, having talked talked about the worker rights, uh, especially during pandemic, uh, I just want to jump uh, into the f- uh, Fashion Revolution, mm-hmm. the platform you co co founded, and also the the movements uh, of who made my clothes. I believe that was a real game changer in fashion industry, not only in the um, sourcing uh, part, but also for consumers uh, by means of transparency. They've, I think that was the starting point of the whole curiosity hmm. of where the clothes are being, where and how the clothes are being uh, produced. And also for the brands and um, so all the players in the fashion industry and I know that uh, I watched very closely that during pandemic, uh, you really played an active role for advocating worker rights and asking the right questions to support them. So for the, for the people uh, listening to us now, I really want you to tell the whole story about Fashion Revolution and who made my clothes
1: campaign. <coughs> okay, folks, That's a long <coughs> story. Um, <so laughs> <coughs> basically as I mentioned at the very start of this conversation, we started as a result of the Rana Plaza disaster. And the truth is that for me anyway, what moved me to um, you know, work with the team on the Who Made My Clothes campaign was the fact that when Rana Plaza happened, the majority of brands that were producing that didn't know that they were. And so this lack of transparency, the fact that you know, we are wearing these clothes with, you know, they accompany us throughout our lives, our daily lives, and yet they're made in misery by people who are putting their lives at risk for what, for a cheap t-shirt, just really profoundly angered me. I was already angry, but it angered me even more. So although um, it was potentially motivated by, you know, by this kind of reaction, we wanted the Who Made My Clothes campaign to be
0: really inclusive
1: we wanted to start asking questions from the point of view of people who wear clothes and love clothes rather than people who reject clothes and reject fashion and i think that was the change with fashion revolution that we spoke fashion we lived fashion we worked in fashion all of us the majority of the team all of the team or the founding team all had prominent roles already in one way or another, in the, the, the fashion industry and, you know, obviously sustainable. Uh, but some of us even, you know, working in the mainstream, such as I was. And um, the truth is that we thought of asking the most ridiculously simple question, precisely because we knew that nobody was going to be able to answer it. So that was who made my clothes, you know, for, for, for a consumer uh realizing that there is no transparency that there is no understanding that there is no one un- really no knowledge over who makes our clothes and out of what materials and are they do they contain toxic toxic substances you know are the people who are making these clothes being exploited was just not something that was discussed at supermarket level you know people knew it somewhere in their brains but not really in their guts and that is to a certain extent what what fashion revolution did and in fact to be honest with you when we started the campaign um, which was immediately successful from year one I mean we trended globally on twitter on the 23rd 24th of april 2013 and you know it, it was successful immediately but the first couple of years of fashion revolution we did focus almost primarily on on supply chain workers and transparency it wasn't until a little bit later maybe 2016 that we started introducing the concept of intersectionality and how people and planet are inextricably linked and you cannot talk about the exploitation of one without acknowledging the exploitation of the other so we really did start with with a with a with a garment worker focus Um, and some of the projects that we did were pioneering i mean the garment worker diaries in which we looked at garment female garment workers in bangalore bangladesh and cambodia um, was you know one of the first times that consumers really were allowed to uh, somehow have a, a a being included in 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 what that world what that life looks like and it doesn't look that good so you know a stronger level of identification from from us to them so to speak and uh, you know so this in in a nutshell was you know how fashion revolution was born I think What made us different apart from this inclusive um, uh, outlook, apart from the fact that we employed our branding and our language very carefully, accurately and interestingly, so that people would feel that they were learning, that they were curious, as you say, the start of a curiosity. But what did make us very different from the start are our country coordinators, because We don't want to assume and presume that a bunch of 50-year-old women or 40-year-old, you know, our team is mostly female in the UK, but, you know, we don't know it all. We don't have that knowledge. We have the enthusiasm, the commitment, the understanding, and we're learning. But the truth is that we are uh, the country coordinators because that's how we understand how different countries are interpreting and living the fashion industry and what's going on so that is really what makes us unique the voices of the people that are on the ground working in different ways along this supply chain all of our country coordinators teams have different expertise according to where they are where there's more education you'll find more where there's more um factories you'll find more people involved with those factories in our teams and this gives us a balanced rounded um, somehow um, well inclusive way of having a, a real understanding of what is happening around the world in the different areas and i I do think that this is the point of difference of all of our campaigns and and people trusted us i think for that government workers included to the point that about two years after we started who made my clothes we started having the the opposite response which was the i made your clothes hashtag which showed us that you know supply chain workers the world over really wanted to be a part of the conversation as well
0: Uh, Yeah, and you uh, introduced them and you actually kind of um, connect them with the consumers, which was a great move. And uh, because the the whole sourcing part of the fashion industry was a bit undervalued previously. And uh, there is the real solution when it comes to uh, creating positive impact. And I also uh, want to ask your operations in Turkey uh, and also for the people who are listening to us, um, how can they participate to this movement?
1: Well, this is the most important element to it. I mean, you know, obviously our teams are mostly run by volunteers. We're just beginning to see now that the sort of top tier of our teams are becoming country offices in the sense that they're fundraising and they're becoming much more self-sufficient. But... So there are so many ways that people and citizens can advocate. And it starts from waking up in the morning and having a different attitude to the clothes that you already own. Um, It starts with in those countries where there are no longer available mending services, finding ways to mend your clothes, thinking about clothing longevity. But for some of us who don't have the time or the capacity to do that, then joining an organization such as Fashion Revolution is a really good way to create your own advocacy because, obviously, Fashion Revolution in Turkey will know uh, what is happening with the local factories, the local stores, um, and will be a point of contact. It's it's very easy to join your local team. Um, You just need to go to to write uh, to turkey at fashionrevolution.org or to go to our website and to have a look at the Turkish page or um, follow them on, on Instagram. Um, I mean, obviously I don't we have 92 countries, so I will uh, I don't have all of the lists here, and I don't know which one I'm working with, Instagram or Twitter. But Turkish is the, the Turkish team is, is very, very active. And so to join them, to support them, to find out from them and to join that community in itself. Is really a very, very strong way to becoming involved, and then you know it's like you know uh, joining a, a, a the fashion revolution shouldn 't really be like going on a diet you shouldn 't do something because you want to do something for a couple of months and then stop, which is why joining an organization is it's, it's a really good way to find your own rhythm because you will discover so many more things, so many new topics that you find interesting as a citizen and then you will mature into becoming more active and, and and more you know more participatory in the movement
0: yeah definitely and I personally really use also your sources your data a lot in my own um, professional and personal life as well so I really recommend you all to uh, go and have a look to to the website so um Fashion revolution is also a power uh, which actually, which is activating the awareness among the the consumer. Um, And we are all glad to see the rising awareness globally. Uh, However, um, knowing the data and numbers, um, all that um, positive noise happening around sustainable fashion is unfortunately not um, satisfactory, so we know that. And also passing through this pandemic, uh, which definitely has um, some new impacts and some uh, new realizations about how complex and fragile the fashion industry is. So what are your insights uh, around the consumer's awareness Um, and... um, How do you expect um, the the situation in post-COVID era, Ursula?
1: Well, um, I have to say, I am asked this question so many times and I don't want to predict anything. I don't really want to, I don't want to go there myself. You know, I don't really want to see. So um, it's, you know, for me, COVID or not COVID, this is a situation that has to change. And I am completely aware of how profoundly complicated it is. And if I look at it as a whole, I would never do the job that I'm doing because it is impossible. So I only do what I can do and only think what I can think. And for me, there are clear and viable alternatives and they don't involve, you know, 25 years from now, they involve now, ev- now every day. So, you know, right now in a pandemic, what can we do as people is take this time to reflect and learn. Um, Obviously not those of us who have small children and a job and, you know, plenty of, of, you know, not enough time to to plenty of work and not enough time to, to concentrate, but those of us that can. So for me, the first and foremost thing that needs to change is going back to that data that something like, only 40 brands uh, control 97% of the market. So let's change that to begin with. Why do, I mean, you know, the dinosaurs have already been killed off by a massive meteorite and made space for the mammals. I want to see a high street and streets all over the world that glorify not Zara H&M, Gucci, blah, blah, blah. I am bored of those brands. They are as irrelevant as they are dangerous. What I want to see is small, creative, artisanal, um, you know, designers, systems, renting, swapping, sharing, mending. We need to see a rise of all that. Once we see that, we will see the world of possibilities. We're beginning to see it in, in places such as, you know, in industries such as food, where, you know, that there is a little bit more understanding around small organic farming, locally produced food, organic food, food without pesticides. That needs to be translated into the fashion industry. Consumers need to understand that our stomach may be the most absorbing organ in our body. But the skin is a close second and we're absorbing everything with everything we wear. And in fact, we're releasing everything with everything we wear each time we wash. So, you know, these are just a a different mode of thinking. The other problem with sustainability in fashion, unfortunately, is that it's niche. It belongs to the rich. So right now you'd think that it's only people with money that are being sustainable. Well, that's not the case. So it's a movement that needs to expand. It's a movement that in itself needs to stop being so elitist. And again, in order to achieve that, it needs to reach out and expand its boundaries. But as I said, this is the moment to genuinely cooperate and collaborate. This is the moment to genuinely imagine that unless we do it all together, we're not going to do it at all. And everybody has to do their bit. My bit is incredibly limited because as I said, it's, it's you know, I come from the heart. I come from, from the, this sort of creative soul. But um, if we look at things with a different perspective, if we stop this oligopoly, if we start looking to support things that are different, things that are smaller, um, we will be changing the cultural outlook for future generations. And this is what needs to happen. This is a big, massive cultural shift that needs to happen. And, you know, and that's where the influence will be in younger generations. We need to influence them. And they're on the right path. I mean, you know, invaded as they have been with cheap clothing, They're finding their own solutions to, you know, make them even cheaper. They're selling on Depop, they're customizing. They don't do it for sustainability. They do it to be individual because, of course, you know, fast fashion is just one sea of same, 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 same. So we need to keep making the world better for them.
0: Yes, and it's uh, really giving hope to see... um... The rise, uh, as you said, to the um, uh, challenger brands, they are small, but the, the total impact uh, over time will be definitely significant. And we all, I mean, the consumer all um, need to support yeah. them to I am really so create proud. change.
1: I mentor designers all over the world. I mentor for free. Um, I mentor out of love. I give my time um, for these young designers and... I am just <clears throat> so insanely proud of their commitment and you know uh, they they bring me to tears they really 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 do because they're struggling they're struggling immensely under covid and yet they're politicized yet yeah, they're not stopping um you know their their resilience is and their integrity is Um, exemplary and why we should not want to learn from them and keep looking at H&M and Zara, um, who, of course, have got an enormous amount of money to innovate. I mean, you know, of course, H&M can put whatever amount of money they want into research. Um, And yet they're not putting the right amount of money into slowing down. And that's what they need to do and to make space and to give credit to all of those brilliant ideas that are coming out that they're often you know using and not crediting so it it is it is a fundamental shift and it's going back to buying less and buying with um you know consistency and buying with with you know uh, consciousness which doesn't mean that if you can only afford fast fashion, you shouldn't buy it. I mean, you know, the onus is on brands to change. You know, what I really want to see is H&M, Zara, Pretty Little Thing, Boohoo, Walmart. I mean, the list is endless. I want them to do free mending in all of their stores because the cheaper the fashion you produce the more it is your responsibility to make it last long. Do they want to produce cheap as shit clothes made of polluting materials? Okay, we can't stop them right now. But bloody hell, the responsibility to make those clothes last and not to go into landfill, it's 100% on the feet of those brands. And, you know, even luxury brands. I mean, you know, repairs, frankly, ought to be mandatory. In fact, there is now in Europe a the right to mend law, meaning that people can buy objects and expect that the brand that makes them is responsible for their upkeep. You know, at, at an affordable price. And as I said, in my case, it ought to be in my you know, it ought to be for free. But you know, these are things that we need to start discussing. And I will never, ever, ever tire of saying it. The responsibility for fast fashion for unsustainable fashion, for unethical fashion, lies on the brands. And it is their responsibility to make it right. Their responsibility to make space for those that are doing it right.
0: So true. I mean, I cannot agree more, Ursula. So, uh, which... um... It carried me what you say is uh, to, to your new uh, book. I think you just uh, recently announced uh Loved last uh, yes. book, which will be I think launched in February. I, I'm looking forward to get it. Uh, so what's that book about? Um are, are is it sorry
1: to interrupt mm-hmm. you, but I have just found um the the Fash Rev Turkey on Instagram and um hmm. it's fash underscore rev un, uh, underscore turkey so for your um, listeners that want to find them on instagram fashion mm-hmm. rev underscore turkey and they're a really brilliant team you can see them on on, on instagram so look. great so loved clothes last um it's also of our hashtags it's the hashtag that fashion revolution uses to talk about you the world of mending mm-hmm. and repairing and and all of that and it's one of the phrases that I used when I was a, you know, uh, an emerging designer myself, because I was using only secondhand clothing, and so basically I was talking about clothing longevity in the context of me being a creative. Um, and mm-hmm. the book, is, it's, it's quite a funny story. I was literally picked up by a brilliant agent, brilliant UK agent on Instagram. I, di- I nearly didn't reply because I thought it was a joke. And, um, and she <laughs> said, you know, let's, uh, she wanted to do a book on mending. And I told her, I'm not actually very good on mending myself because I've always worked with such amazing seamstresses that my sewing, in comparison, is terrible. Um, but of course, <laughs> I've got lots of ideas. And so I suggested that instead of doing a how-to-mend book, which, you know, there are brilliant mending books from Katharina Rudd, Visible Mend, and, you know, there are better ones. But I said I could do a why to mend book and so that's my book mm-hmm. so it's got my life it's got my tricks my you know all the things that I do um well half of them because I'm lazy and half of them because I'm sustainable but um and it's got my knowledge and my understanding of um what this industry was so my my colleague Bronwyn who is our um, content manager at Fashion Revolution and who also helped a lot with the research for this book she describes it as part of memoir and part manual and i think that that's probably what describes it the best
0: mm-hmm. perfect so we i will um I, I look forward to get it so it's it's going to be published in it february published right? in or the so
1: uk well? only in february and then in italy it's going to be published in march and it's going to be published in france as well but i don't remember the date
0: so- okay so okay. we will be following you was
1: published in turkey but you know i'm sorry not that i know of so far
0: that that's okay uh, also in english yes. so um and i um also personally wonder and i think our listeners too how is your wardrobe oh my uh, Ursula? so how is your consuming oh habits God. and do you only wear no,
1: sustainable I'm, fashion I'm or you really know i wear everything <laughs> that i fall in love with but i keep <laughs> so, I mean, in fact, one of my most um, read uh, blogs, uh, before I ever even knew, probably my first one, before I even knew that I could actually write, um, talks about my favorite Nighty, which is from Primark and I bought 20 years ago. It's dead now, but it lasted a good 18 and you know, the reality is that I am a clothes keeper. That was actually the original title. The title I wanted for the book was Clothes Keepers. Um, because mm, I, have, nice like, one. <laughs> I have a huge, huge wardrobe which is populated by clothes that I've inherited from my grandmother, from my mother, my aunt, my cousins, my daughters, my best friends, which I've bought, uh which I've bought from my uh young designers that I mentor, because that's obviously, you know, that is you know that's why I mentor for free is because I get hugely discounted clothing so at the end of the day it feeds my habit and it provides you know advice to them but um, I've, I've been known to buy the odd fast fashion piece if I consider it right for me at that point in time I have to be honest with you Absolutely less and less and less for myself. But, you know, I am a parent, after all. You know, I have to deal with growing kids and grandkids. And, you know, sometimes Mm -hmm. you find yourself that you have to buy, you know, the knickers from, you know, from your local fast fashion, you know, shop that sells, you know, cotton underwear, because you can't necessarily always buy, you know, organic pants that cost, you know, 25 pounds a pop, when you know that your child is going to grow out of them in less than a year. So, you know, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. completely aware of same with, you know, jeans, denim, clothing. You know, I'm not I, I, I suffer as everybody else. Uh, the, the the unavailability of, of cheap and affordable, sustainable fashion at my doorstep. So I, I buy with love. I buy with commitment. I buy with longevity in mind. Um, and of course, I pass, I share, I mend, and if I do donate to charity, I donate clothes in a better state than when I received them. In many ways, I mean, I don't dump onto charity. But my my, uh, I would say that my own clothing, um, you know, habits are definitely eclectic, um, definitely as sustainable as I possibly can, but absolutely human within what is possible. Right now, Um, as I said, the main difference, I guess, between me and and my next door neighbor is this relationship with young designers and the fact that I can that I have access to clothing that are beautifully made with exquisite materials that are, you know, soundly sourced. And I do have access to them at a discount because of my job. But the truth is that if citizens were to um, put a little bit of time and effort, they would find that these young designers, um, you know, have. Uh, sample sales or pop-up shops or, you know, if you start a relationship with one of them, you too will be allowed to have, you know, discounts and privilege from, you know, buying from them. And if you think how long um, it would take for somebody to research um, you know, the perfect fit the perfect size, is this pair of denim the right size for me? Do I want a boyfriend? Do I want it skinny? Is it low rise, high rise? Instead of looking at all of that Look at, is this pink jumper made with the right pink? Is this pink not, not toxic? Is this yarn recycled? Is this yarn recyclable? Um, is this dress made from organic cotton or non-organic cotton? Who made it and how much were they paid when they made it? You know, if you start that research, you will certainly achieve uh, a, a better shopping um, life.
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, And any
1: final words
0: uh, and suggestions about um, conscious consumption, uh, not only in fashion, but as a sustainable living uh, performer. Performer, before we close, Ursula, any last words? Well,
1: just you know, try, because it's you know, it's no longer an option. I don't think I feel it's an obligation. So certainly for those brands to hold them accountable, and certainly for citizens who care, um, the time has shifted rapidly from something that we are advised to do to something that we know we have to do. And so really dig inside your gut and find the right way for you to be involved. It could be practical, it could be theoretical, but to actually spread this word outside of the eco-chamber is what needs to happen now. And for that, we need everybody.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes. So thank you very much, uh, Ursula. It was really a pleasure and honor to have you here and all your um, amazing insights and um, suggestions um, and story about how you founded this moment, I think this will be an inspiration for many other industries and citizens as well so thank you thank so you much thank you so much
1: for inviting me and don't forget to follow us during fashion revolution week and don't forget to discover the Turkish team definitely we will thank you bye, bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.